Blog Talk Radio. Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. <clears throat> Pardon me. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is June 2nd, 2017. Always great uh, joining you, catching up with you at the end of the week to try to sort out the madness. And it almost always involves madness, doesn't it? Uh, if you're familiar with me, familiar with my program, you know that I'm a retired senior special agent <clears throat> with what used to be the Immigration and Naturalization Service. The INS today, of course, that mission taken up by ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, under the aegis of the umbrella organization known as the DHS, Department of Homeland Security. <clears throat> finally, boy, I apologize. I have a frock in my throat. Um, you know, finally, there is some security to be found in the Department of Homeland Security, thanks to the current administration, unlike the prior administration. But now between uh, Congress, members of the, part, of the political parties of both sides of the aisle, and the courts, efforts by this administration to truly secure the borders, protect America. Okay, I, I guess we are back alive. Uh, goodness gracious, technical difficulties, uh, sometimes beyond our control, but it's good to be rejoining you. Uh, as I started to note, this war on terror that we are engaged in, uh, in this dangerous era where the courts, as well as members of both political parties, have attempted to stymie efforts by the Trump administration to secure our borders, enforce our immigration laws, prevent the entry of terrorists, people who cannot be effectively vetted, is insanity. <clears throat> and that's an issue that we're going to discuss tonight. But what I also want to remind everybody, if you're new to my program, I welcome you, and I want to tell you that I am, um, and I think you may have heard this before, but we've been having problems, so I'm not sure what you were able to hear previously. Um, I'm a retired immigration agent. I spent 30 years of my life enforcing our immigration laws. I've arrested terrorists in my career. I've arrested narcotics traffickers. Half my 30-year career was spent with the Drug Task Force and with DEA intelligence. And this has been a, a topic that I have been passionate about, especially ever since the ashes from 9-11 landed in my home in New York. And this is about informing as many of our American um, citizen neighbors as possible. And this isn't about a left-right issue. This is a right-wrong issue. And so uh, I have a number of websites I very much want you to go to. I want you to go to, of course, my own personal website, michaelcutler.net, C-U-T-L-E-R. That's my personal website. For many years, I have been affiliated with and writing for an organization known as Californians for Population Stabilization, although their name says California. Uh, the issues in California are no different from anywhere else. We are a nation of 50 border states, but their terrific website is CAPSWeb, C-A-P-S, CAPSWeb.org. Check out their articles. I write for them, and they have been for years. 
I've been doing a lot of writing for uh, Front Page Magazine, frontpagemag.com, sponsored by the David Horowitz Freedom Center. Uh, Generally, I get um, four or five articles out per month on that website. And tonight we're going to talk about my most recent article about visa overstays, a gap in our nation's border, and the subtitle, After Decades and Billions of Dollars, a Major Terror Vulnerability Still Persists. So we're going to talk about that vulnerability and um, how insane the failures of our government have been, and it has to be with design. You cannot be this inept and this incompetent by accident, okay? Also, I write for the Social Contract, the quarterly publication. I have the two lead stories for their articles in this quarterly edition, the spring edition. Finally, uh, this evening, I just got word that my very first article has been posted at the Newsmax opinions page. I will be doing some blogging for them, providing insight for Newsmax. You know, I'm a regular on their television programs, often with Bill Tucker, an old friend of mine. Bill and I go back to the days when he was a correspondent for Lou Dobbs Tonight over at CNN. Uh, I must have been on Lou's program, uh, goodness, well over 100 times. And so uh, being on again with Bill Tucker is always great, and he is now a correspondent with Newsmax great organization, and I'm going to let you in on a secret about Newsmax that I'm really impressed with and why I'm happy to write for them, happy to be on their programs. Unlike so many other television networks, and you could name just about all of them, they do pre-interviews. So you get a phone call from a producer, and they say, Mr. Cutler, we're going to be doing a discussion this evening. This is the topic. How do you think you want to discuss it? Now, that pre-interview constitutes censorship because if you say something that the producers decide is going off the reservation, not in keeping with the narrative, your invitation not so subtly gets withdrawn. Well, that's a very interesting perspective, Mr. Cutler. Sorry, Uh, we're going to probably go in a different direction today. Click, and then you find that the... Invitation is no longer an invitation. Newsmax never does that. They simply contact me and they say, this is the topic, do you want to come on? And I'll tell them yes, and they say great, and I usually do it by Skype, although occasionally I do go into the studio, but Skype is so convenient. Same thing true, by the way, uh, um, over at the Dana Show, over at Blaze TV and One American News Network. Those three networks, when they reach out to me, never, ever conduct a pre-interview. You should know that, and it's important for you to know it. Because what you're not realizing, there's no way of knowing this, is that the other networks engage in a form of censorship. That is not what Americans need from news organizations. And and I've questioned the producers at those programs why they don't do the um, pre-interview. And they agree with me. And they said, look, if we're bringing a guest on who is a recognized national authority, then whatever that expert's opinions are need to be provided to our audience. And even if we think you might be wrong, even if we don't agree with you necessarily, and usually we do agree, fine, you're going to come on, you're going to have the freedom to say what's on your mind. We might bring on another guest at a later date who has a different perspective, and that's balanced, that's fair, that's what journalism is. But when you have a supposed news organization 
asking you, what do you plan to say? And if God forbid what you want to say goes against their notions or their agenda, you're gone. And there's no way for the audience to even know what transpired because you don't get to see that person. You don't get to hear that person. So I am writing now for Newsmax. Happy to be uh, adding them to my list of websites where you will be seeing my articles because these issues are very, very important. They go to the survival of our country. They go to the safety and survival of of our people. And this isn't xenophobia. And for far too long, the tactic of bullying and intimidation has been conducted by open borders anarchists, by people who see in America's borders impediments to wealth and power. It's as simple as that, impediments to wealth and power. If you look at what the 9-11 Commission wrote about and talked about, if you look at, and I provided testimony to the Commission, first and foremost, the 9-11 attacks and other attacks, because they looked at a total of 94 terrorists who operated in the United States, up to and including the 9-11 hijackings. And what they found were that of the 94, 59, 59, in other words, about two-thirds, used either visa fraud or immigration fraud to enter the United States and embed themselves. I would argue that they all lied, by the way. I was an inspector at Kennedy International Airport when I began my career. And so... Uh, when I helped Arizona with the lawsuit that the DOJ filed against them under the Obama administration for enacting their own immigration or their own immigration law, SB 1070, uh, I described my four-year stint at the airport as an inspector as a time when I had my eye to the peephole on America's front door. And so what you need to realize is that when that inspector encounters an arriving passenger, in the case of an airport or a person walking across the border at a land border port or getting off a ship at seaport, the question you ask is, who are you and why are you here? And if you lie, technically, it's a felony. We almost never prosecute that felony, but it's a felony. You're supposed to tell the truth to that inspector. They're not asking you this out of idle curiosity. And somehow, now bear with me, Somehow my sense is that none of those 19 pieces of trash that carried out those terror attacks on 9-11 said, hi, I'm here to blow up buildings with airliners. I don't think that's what they told the inspector. So understand just how critical that interview by the inspector at the port of entry is, and it only lasts generally about a minute. It's a daunting, daunting task. When visas are required, the visa application is certainly very helpful. And we find now that because of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and this was the topic of my article, by the way, for Newsmax, uh, the Newsmax article uh, has an interesting title. The the editors kind of switched my title around slightly, but that's cool. But the, 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 the title is this, Manchester terrorists could have visited U.S. under the visa waiver program. Why on earth have we continued and, in fact, expanded the visa waiver program since 9-11? The 9-11 Commission warned that the visa process needed to be tightened up. Too much laxity. We had 26 visa waiver countries on 9-11. There should be zero. Zero. None. Nada. There should be. Instead, we have 38 because the U.S. Chamber of Commerce partnering with the Hotel, Hospitality, Travel, and Manufacturing Associations, 
continued to apply pressure in the form of open bribes, which really in my world what campaign contributions are, to continue to expand the visa waiver program. And that's because the Chamber of Commerce, I call them the Chamber of Horrors, is hell-bent on flooding America with cheap foreign labor to displace American workers and drive down wages. This is all about greed we've never seen before, unimaginable greed. They want to flood America with foreign tourists and with foreign students. That's the goal. And if you go to the Discover America Partnership website, you will see that they rail against the visa process. They rail against efforts at security. Oh, they say, well, you know, there's ways of doing this without a visa. The visa is costing us billions of dollars in commerce. No one's looking at the billions of dollars that we're losing in remittances, money being wired home by foreign workers, drained right out of the U.S. economy, contributing mightily to our 19, or now it's a $20 trillion deficit. You know, the remittances alone, when you look at the multiplier effect, by themselves more than account for the annual increase in the national debt. I want you to think about that. They don't care about that. They don't care about that. And when illegal aliens are hired, Americans lose their jobs. The Americans go on safety net programs, become homeless. Not their fault they're being fired because their bosses know they could hire illegal aliens. When high-tech American workers get fired to be displaced by people primarily from India, that doesn't matter to the Chamber of Commerce. So you have Americans with advanced degrees, MBAs, PhDs, doesn't matter, being displaced by workers from India who send money home And along the way, these folks lose their careers and often, all too often, lose their homes. But that's okay. It's the cost of doing business. And when people are killed by terrorists, so be it. It's collateral damage. So here's my proposition. The situation will not change as long as the Chamber of Commerce and the lackey politicians who take their bribes are more fixated on head counts on airliners than body counts in the morgue. That's where the problem lies today. They are more fixated on the head counts on airliners and how many rooms are occupied in hotels and how many seats are filled at Yankee Stadium and Fenway Park and all the other ballparks, how many seats are filled at various events around the United States, with little regard to how many bodies wind up in the morgue. And then again, of course, the funeral home business is an American industry, isn't it? So that's the topic that I wrote about for Newsmax. So check them out, and I think you'll find that interesting. But um, what I want to turn my attention to, though, is my latest article for Front Page Magazine. And and this is something that I think will amaze you, probably infuriate you. In fact, I hope it infuriates you. And I hope that if you become infuriated enough that you will reach out to your alleged political representatives, that you will sit down with your neighbors, with your family. And, you know, people say we don't have to discuss or we shouldn't be discussing politics in, in polite situations. Folks, we need to talk about politics. Religion is one thing. How you worship God, if you worship God, that's between you and your conscience. 
that relationship is the most private and personal that we can have. And, and certainly, I believe in religious freedom. That's what America was built on. And we don't necessarily need to have those discussions unless you're with a group and there's a reason and so forth. <clears throat> so that advice we got as kids, I can understand that. But, folks, if we don't talk about politics, then there's only one message getting out there, and it's a very tightly controlled message by open borders anarchists who have no concern about America's sovereignty or America's borders or the future of our country or our citizens. It's as simple as that. You know, if the Democrats were really Democrats, they should be screaming at the top of their lungs. The Democratic Party, as we all know, used to be the party of labor. Their constituents were blue-collar and union workers, school teachers and postal workers and um, tradesmen, like my dad, who was a construction worker. He was a plumber. That's what the Democratic Party was about, looking out for working Americans. And the Republican Party was concerned about the well-being of business owners. And you know what? Very often their goals and their concerns ran parallel. <clears throat> And at times they diverged, and the divergence was handled by the two parties, and it made sense. It made sense. Businesses obviously want to lower their costs, so they do that through contracts or whatever way they do it with their relationship with their employers, uh, their employees rather. And the employees want to get the most money and the best benefits from the employer. So that was the, 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 the line of scrimmage, if you will, the, the point of contention. And the Democrats were supposed to uh, take into account the needs of the workers, the Republicans, the desires of the business owners, and it made sense. Today, nobody, but nobody, has given a damn about the American worker until this administration. And what is so remarkable, they've written about it, the useful idiots protesting at the mayhem, May Day mayhem demonstrations, that they want better wages and working conditions for workers, but they also want America to continue to have open borders and flood the country. In economics, there's a principle known as supply and demand. If you flood a market with a commodity, you drive down the value of the commodity. This is an engineered act, <clears throat> and a lot of fools, were out there demonstrating some were anarchists in their own right, and you have illegal aliens that knew they could get away with it, so they were out there. But you have, I really believe this, Americans who the compassion word really melts them. Americans tend to be compassionate. <clears throat> Talk about children, we get dewy-eyed. Talk about people living in poverty, we want to reach for our wallets to give out contributions. How many times have you seen it? where there's a catastrophe, and people collect money, not for the victims, but claim to be collecting money for the victims, and uh, literally, figuratively, they make out like bandits because everybody reaches for their wallets to give some money. No matter what their economic situation is, Americans are a soft touch. We really are. We should be proud of it. But it's being exploited by some truly evil people. And so I really believe that there were some people out there marching on Labor Day who thought they were being compassionate, who thought they were being compassionate. They didn't realize that their jobs and the jobs of their neighbors and their children and their spouses were on the chopping block. <clears throat> so they're protesting 
the first president in decades, literally decades, and I don't care what president you want to talk about, which party, this is the first president who's putting Americans first, and they're screaming. That's how bad it has gotten. And that's why we need to stand up, and when people say dumb things, uh, you know, politely, firmly, and with good information, we need to counter the stupidity and the lies. We need to make it clear. You know, our policies, our immigration policies, are the most generous on the planet. We admit a million lawful immigrants every year. We give them green cards, they're immediately on the path to citizenship. It's more than the rest of the world combined. We naturalize hundreds of thousands of new citizens every year, more than the rest of the world combined. Some countries won't even allow you to become a naturalized citizen. We do. And more than anybody else. So when you look at the problem with how we give out visas and how we're willing to just flood the country to satisfy the demands of the people who own the Congress that took the campaign contributions, exacerbated by sanctuary cities. The sanctuary cities exist for a couple of reasons also. Again, the Chamber of Commerce loves sanctuary cities. It enables illegal aliens to work and hide in plain sight. You know, think of the people we've heard in Congress saying, or, or the state legislatures, we need to give driver's licenses to the illegals. They're going to drive anyway, and how will they get to their jobs? Well, if they're working and they're here illegally, they are stealing a job from an American worker. They are stealing a job from a lawful immigrant worker. But they don't care about that, you see, because if you flood the market, you can charge, you can pay less money to those people. And if they're here illegally, you just don't even have to bother with what the law requires at all, where safety or health standards are concerned. All bets are off. All bets are off. And this is what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce wants. That's what the hotel, hospitality, and manufacturing associations want. That's what the bankers want. And you have a president who says, we're not going to do that anymore. And everybody is aghast. Oh, my God, what is he doing? What he's doing is helping to cause wages to go up, and nobody seems to get it. So understand why it is so important that – you know, we, we, we've heard so much in, in, in years where firearms were concerned about stand-your-ground laws. Well, this has nothing to do with firearms, nothing at all. But where the arguments are concerned, we need a stand-your-ground mindset. When someone says to you you're being xenophobic, don't apologize and walk away. Make it clear that this isn't xenophobia. This is common sense. When you look at what happened at Manchester, when you look at what happened in in the United States at the Boston Marathon, in California, at 9-11, the list goes on. You know, San Bernardino, that, that horrific event. Please understand, this is what we're trying to prevent. Foreign nationals, aliens, have no inherent right to enter the United States. Only citizens do. Under the immigration laws, immigration inspectors may not, under any circumstances, prevent the entry of a United States citizen into the United States. In fact, once the inspector at the port of entry is convinced that that person seeking entry is an American, they have to admit the American. The only thing they may do is hold that American for a law enforcement agency that has posted a warrant for that person. That does happen, and I did that as an agent. People coming in wanted as a suspect in a murder. 
well, because they're wanted by the FBI for some crime. Fine. You, you arrest the person and hold them for law enforcement, but you cannot deny that person entry into the United States. Aliens, on the other hand, have the burden of proving that they're coming here to comply with our law. It's almost kind of like you're concerned about future crimes in the minority report, you know, where Tom Cruise was trying to figure out whether people were intending to commit a crime and arrest them before the crime. Well, here what you're doing is denying entry to people that you become convinced are coming with the intention of violating our immigration laws. Those laws are our first and last line of defense and have absolutely nothing to do with race, religion, or ethnicity. Then if you go to Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182, and that's an important section of law, and we'll get to the reason for that in a moment, but this provides you with a list of all the categories of aliens to be excluded from the United States. Thoughts with aliens with dangerous communicable diseases, aliens who are severely mentally ill, aliens who are criminals, human traffickers, drug smugglers, gun runners, prostitutes, uh, murderers, arsonists, aliens who are fugitives from justice, aliens who are war criminals, aliens who are spies, aliens who are terrorists. That's who are excludable by law, not based on race, religion, ethnicity. If they were, I assure you, I couldn't have worked there for 30 minutes, let alone 30 years. But 1182 Section F goes back to something that Donald Trump is trying to do, and that's to prevent the entry of aliens who cannot be vetted. And I don't have the the section of law, but I will paraphrase it. It's a short one, but again, it's Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182F as in Frank. And basically it says that the president by himself or herself has the right to deem any alien or any class of aliens to be excludable from the United States if he or she determines that it would be detrimental to the best interest to the United States were they to be admitted. And he can do this or she can do this for as long a period of time as is deemed appropriate and necessary. It doesn't say the president must go to the Congress, the president must consult with his grandmother. No, no, no. The president acting individually may do that. And it's done to protect us. And when the U.S. Embassy was overrun back in 1979, I believe it was, or 1980, Jimmy Carter, using that authority, blocked the entry of Iranians into the United States. He also had immigration agents drop their casework, and we went out and looked for every illegal Iranian we could find because there were concerns that among them were saboteurs, spies, and terrorists. So all of the work that we had been doing went out the window. We were called in for an emergency briefing, and we were told, lock up your files, whatever cases you're working on. If you believe that it's of such important nature meet with your supervisors after this uh, briefing session and we'll consider your arguments to allow you to continue. But other than something of an extraordinary nature, all all, uh, casework is ending. Your job now is to go out there and find Iranian nationals in the United States. They pose a threat to, to national security. And that was it. And the president did that with a phone call, Jimmy Carter. Called immigration and said, this is what you're going to do. And the orders were followed. Because aliens have no inherent right to be here, and it is recognized that if you can't control your borders, you can't defend your country. I, I work with, speak, with the Speakers Bureau down in Washington. I've been working with them for years, Alan Freed Associates, and they do seminars for the military and the intelligence services. And I remember one day, or a number of times, 
standing in front of a room filled with Air Force brass, lots of colonels and generals. And I said to them, there is no point to a military. You cannot justify a military if a country is unwilling or unable to secure its borders against those people who would come here and, and kill. Not a single dissenting voice in the room. They all nodded in agreement. Please understand that the immigration mission is an adjunct to what the military does. On September 11, 2001, the terrorists attacked us, and they had not come here on U-boats. You know, that Navy commercial, it's called The Shield. I love the commercial. I love the military. To get to you, they got to get through us, and you see thousands of members of the U.S. Navy wearing all sorts of uniforms and gear, you know, divers and pilots and nurses and so forth. To get to you, they got to get through us. No, they don't. They're not coming in U-boats. They're coming in airliners, and they're landing at international airports. And so we come back to the problem that once people enter the United States and go missing, they pose no less a threat than people who run the border. It's not an either-or. You know, people say, well, if we secure the border, then everything is okay. No. Well, what about if you build a wall, but then they tunnel under the wall? So what does that mean? What it means is that immigration law enforcement is multifaceted. This notion that if building a wall isn't going to take care of all the problems, then we shouldn't build the wall is insane. It's insane. You do everything you need to do when you are talking about the intentions of individuals to come to this country and slaughter innocent civilians en masse. I've never in my life heard arguments that we are now hearing today. Put up a wall. Do you know what that's going to cost? During the Second World War, the United States won that war with its allies in 44 months. 44 months after 9-11, I was sitting at a congressional hearing listening to Richard Stenner, who I believe was the head of, uh, I think it was GAO or the Inspector General, um, forgive me, But his job was to take a hard look at how immigration law enforcement was being conducted under the aegis of the DHS. And 44 months after 9-11, he was talking about how they were still cobbling together a mission statement and trying to figure out what the priorities were. 44 months after Pearl Harbor, and by the way, we suffered fewer casualties at Pearl Harbor than we did on 9-11. Think about that. 44 months after Pearl Harbor, This country, working with its allies, built all kinds of airplanes, fighter planes and bombers. We built tanks. We built radar networks. We built atom bombs. Didn't matter what the cost was. Didn't matter how difficult it was. We did whatever it took, and we won the war in 44 months. We've had people killed in America for decades by aliens who managed to enter the country and with the intentions kill innocent people, innocent people, in some cases children, children. And what do we do? Oh, a wall? But what if they come and tunnel? What if they land at an airport? What if they stow away on a ship? So, you know, I wrote an article a while back for Front Page Magazine. I called it Border Security and the Immigration Colander. Plugging one hole in the bottom of a colander doesn't turn it into a watertight bucket. It doesn't work that way. And the resolve that this nation used to have, the can-do spirit that used to epitomize the United States, has gone out the window. 
We've gone from the can-do country to the can't-do country with a BS explanation and excuse. And as I taught my kids when they were growing up, an excuse is the opposite of a success. When you're successful, it's a very short conversation. How was the test? I got a 98. Wonderful. Short story. When a kid comes home, and I've been blessed because my kids almost always got amazing grades. They're they're, they're super successes. Uh, But, you know, when you hear the kid come home and say, well, I took the test, Dad, but, you know, my pencil broke, and the kid next to me kept clearing his throat, and you know this is not going to be a story with a happy ending. It seems that whenever they hold hearings in Washington, especially about immigration, there are no happy endings. There's always an excuse. So when we talk about excuses, We're going to go to my story on front page. Visa overstays a gap in the nation's border. After decades and billions of dollars, a major terror vulnerability still exists. So, first of all, recently the Secretary of Homeland Security was interviewed and said that the terrorist situation is scarier than you know, and he went on and said that if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't go out of your house. Now, this is the guy who's in charge of Homeland Security. Well, if the situation is that dire, what are we doing about it? <clears throat> and by the way, I've got to tell you, it's not just the Obama administration. Again, this has been going back forever. If you go to my article, and I hope you will read my article, and if you like it, please post it on Facebook and other social media. I included a quote about, from, from John Hostetler, who chaired the House Immigration Subcommittee, at, at 44 months ago, after 9-11, in fact. We are just talking about that. And at that hearing... He talked about how the Bush administration, George W. Bush, put together DHS in such a way where it obfuscated the enforcement of our immigration laws and the security of our borders. The Homeland Security Act was supposed to streamline the operation so that we could deal with immigration failures. The Bush administration created a Department of Homeland Surrender, in my judgment, that exacerbated all of the problems. And I played a role in in putting all this together, and I was aghast at what they did. I testified before a bunch of hearings, before a number of subcommittees in Washington, and I was in a state of rage. Those ashes landed on my home, and I had testified four and a half years before 9-11 about immigration vulnerabilities and terrorism. And so here is what, here's a quick excerpt, and again, please read the article. The links are there so you can see the entire articles. But this was the chairman of the House Immigration Subcommittee, and he Repub- was a Republican at the time of the hearing. He still is a Republican. He's no longer a congressman. But, but listen to this. At no time during the reorganization planning, that is to say of DHS, was it anticipated by the committee, that's the House Committee on Immigration or the House Judiciary Committee, that an immigration enforcement agency would share its role with other enforcement functions, such as the enforcement of our customs laws. This simply results in the creation of a dual or multiple, multiple missions that the act sought to avoid in the first place. He went on and said, failure to adhere to the statutory framework established by HSI, the Homeland Security Act, has produced immigration enforcement incoherence that undermines the immigration enforcement mission central to DHS and undermines the security of our nation's borders and citizens. Could he have been any clearer? Now, back in 1996, there was something known as the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996. One of the requirements of that law, and I worked with the subcommittee on, on parts of that as well, 
unofficially. One of the mandates that came out of that law, this is now 21 years ago, was to track the arrival and departure of non-immigrant aliens, aliens coming on temporary visas, whether they're coming as students, whether they're coming as reporters, whether they're coming as, as tourists, doesn't matter. If you're here on a temporary visa, we need to know when you go and when you come. And we actually should be doing it with resident aliens also. Any alien should be tracked. Now, resident aliens, it's significant because if they get to apply for citizenship, we need more than their word that they were inside the United States for the required period of time that gives them the authority legally to apply for citizenship. So we need to have an accounting. Now, DHS is not like DHL, the freight forwarder. DHL and FedEx and UPS have no problem tracking packages, but they somehow can't track people. So and maybe it's a little bit more complex with people, no argument, but you would think that, an, that the American people who got to the moon over 40 years ago repeatedly and never lost an astronaut on the way to the moon or back could figure out how to track aliens, you would think. So nothing happened on this program of consequence until 9-11. Then the 9-11 Commission said, you've got to be able to track these people. This is national security. This is a mandate. Well, we had the 9-11 Commission to make sure it didn't happen again, right? So they gave a contract, the U.S. government gave a contract to Accenture. Accenture was a spinoff of the Arthur Anderson accounting firm of Enron Notoriety. Remember Enron, of course, that fiasco. <clears throat> so Accenture gets the contract. If the name Accenture sounds familiar, after they screw this up, by the way, they were given a multi-million dollar, I believe it was hundreds of millions of dollars, to run the Obamacare website. Where else but in our corrupt government could a company that can't get its act together repeatedly be paid millions and millions of dollars to do vital work for the government when their track record is abysmal? Think about that. Think about that. And people say, well, it's because it's government. No, it's because corporations have corrupted our government. That's what the problem is. See, if you put three people together in a room, you have a political system. And the system that we have with these campaign contributions that are nothing more than thinly veiled bribes is where the problem lies, in my judgment, in my judgment. So Accenture gets a $10 billion, $10 billion with a B, dollar contract. Nine years later, they still can't do it, <clears throat> even after they were given still more money. <clears throat> Pardon me. So now what was called U.S. Visit and it's an acronym, but this was supposed to be the tracking, became um, something different, and um, it's now called the Office of Biometric, uh, Biometric Identity Management, O-B-I-M, Office of Biometric Identity Management. So they do a hearing about this, and first of all, we're told that nearly three-quarters of a million people who came into the United States last year with visas, legally admitted, may not have left the United States or may have otherwise violated the terms of their admission, three-quarters of a million people. That's why I keep saying it's more than the Mexican border, although undoubtedly that border has to be made secure. Think of that colander with all the holes. Now it turns out, when you look at the testimony, that they're not sure about people leaving through land border ports. And I've got to tell you, I'm not so sure we know who's coming in through land border ports either, so this is mainly an accounting of people coming in through seaports and international airports. So we're dealing with hundreds of thousands of aliens 
every year who don't leave. I had testified before a congressional hearing about closing the terror door back in 2005, 12 years ago. Again, this is not a new problem, but we still don't know what's going on. Now, here's what's so incredible. When you look at the results of their finding, and, and this is what really blew my mind, there was a uh, the report that was issued by the Inspector General entitled Visa Overstays, a Gap in the Nation's Border. Some gap. You could fly airliners, hijacked airliners through those gaps. Now, I'm going to read a little bit of this to you. The results of our audit reveal that DHS information technology systems do not effectively support U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement visa tracking operations for the following reasons. If you thought my dog ate my homework is a lousy excuse, we've got that one beat by a country mile. Here it comes. Identifying and investigating potential visa overstays requires pulling data from dozens of systems and databases, some of which are not integrated and do not electronically share information. What in the world did Accenture do for nearly a decade being paid billions of dollars? You still have dozens of IT systems that aren't communicating with each other? Unbelievable. Now, it goes on. Access to real-time data is mired by system access restrictions. Catch this one. The need to retain up to 40 passwords and systems that are not updated. So imagine this. You're an agent. You're trying to track some guy down. You need 40 separate passwords to access dozens of databases that don't communicate with each other. And in any event, they might not be current in their information anyway. And we gave Accenture how much money? It goes on and says this. ICE personnel do not have the training and guidance they need to effectively identify and utilize the myriad systems currently under, currently available for visa overstay tracking. And finally, in the absence of a comprehensive biometric exit system at U.S. ports, DHS relies on third-party departure data, which is not always accurate, and fails to capture land departure data, which accounts for the vast majority of visitors exiting the United States. In other words, we're clueless. And when you're talking about private sector, you know, you always worry about corruption within government. There are spies and moles and so forth. But I remember when I was an inspector at the airport back in the 70s, we had members of organized crime who were ordered out of the United States, and they did it on the honor system, if you could imagine. So some mobster would say to one of his, you know, subordinates, Take your family on a vacation in Palermo. Here's the airplane ticket. Give it in. Give in my, my document, which was an I-94, the arrival departure document. When you leave, then everything is okay because it will look to the system as though I'm no longer here, so they're not going to look for me. So this guy would fly out to, to Italy for a two-week vacation with his family. He was happy as a clam, and the mobster was still here. But the records, which back then were on microfilm, seemed to indicate that he left the country. It's still happening today. We gave tens of billions of dollars to Accenture, squandered 
a couple of decades, and the time is even more disturbing than the money, because every day it's a possibility that a terrorist or terrorists or criminals or fugitives will enter the United States. You can make book on it. This is what passes for Homeland Security. I mean, I just want you to stop and understand what we're dealing with. They have had so many hearings in Washington, and they always come up with the same nonsense, reasons why it's not working, and they always issue bland reports. We need to know better who's coming. We need to know better who's leaving. You know, these very obscure little statements that are the titles, when in reality... Alarm bells ought to be clanging and red lights ought to be flashing. We're in the middle of a war on terror. People are dying. You look at Manchester and the fact that the Manchester bomber was a British subject who easily could have gotten on an airplane and entered the United States under the visa waiver program. That wasn't mentioned in the news. In fact, what's remarkable was with all the talk about the terrorists, you never, on the other networks, see immigration agents come on. Immigration is discussed by everybody and anybody except for people who actually enforce the immigration laws for a living. How insane is that? When you look at the mainstream media, when you watch their programs, there is no shortage of true subject matter experts. If there is a heinous homicide, you know, there's a body dismembered, They will dig up a retired homicide detective, and he sits there and spends 20 minutes talking about how you do a murder investigation. When there's a kidnapping, there's no shortage of retired FBI profilers who sit in front of the cameras. When there's a space um, story, there's no shortage of astronauts. If there's a story about the military, in come the SEALs, the generals, and the Army Rangers. But when the story is immigration, why is it? Why is it that you don't see immigration agents? You might see a border sheriff on, and I'd love to know what a border sheriff could contribute to the discussion about the visa waiver program. They look at the Mexican border and they say, yep, they're coming across the border and they're killing folk in my town. That's immigration. That's the coverage. Nobody talks about the fraud. And by the way, I did a major article for the social contract, immigration fraud, the lies that kill. You don't hear that. You don't hear that. What you hear are the statements by people who have no knowledge about how it's done. They they talk about in theory. And the world of theory has no resemblance to the world of reality. You hear these these, uh, television people get on, you know, they sit there on the throne of the television studio set. Well, if some immigrant who is undocumented has been living here for seven years and he hasn't been arrested, Certainly we should give them a green card and make them part of America. Give them citizenship. Hold on, Charlie. Hold on just one moment. How do you know how long an illegal alien has been living here? Because we're going to be talking about likely tens of millions of illegal aliens who created no record of entry when he or she ran the border. There will be no interviews because there's too many damn people to process. Forget about any notion of any field investigation whatsoever. All they're going to do is run the name that they provide and run fingerprints. So if the guy got here three weeks ago and he's a terrorist, the fingerprints come up clean. Very often that is the case. The name is a fantasy name or it's a variation in spelling. 
And what most people don't understand is that not everybody uses the English language. And, and, and we had this happen in a major drug investigation, for example, where we were dealing with Chinese subjects or Russian subjects or Israelis. And if you try to translate Hebrew into English or Chinese into English, there's 15 different ways of spelling that name. And then all it takes is flipping the date of birth backwards, and suddenly you've got a whole new identity. So the guy that was born on April 1st, you know, April Fool's Day, says he was born on 1-4, the first of the fourth month, which is how they do it in Europe, and he's got a plausible excuse if you question him. Oh, where I come from, we put the day first. So 4-1-whatever becomes 1-4, boom, the computer no longer recognizes that as being the same person. So the ability to truly identify these people is daunting, to say the least, and with no interviews and with no field investigations. But these folks sit there in front of those cameras, and the average American sitting in his or her home says, well, that makes sense. And this guy's a smart guy. He's a lawyer. He's a doctor. He's a psychologist. He must know what he's talking about. He's in front of a TV camera, so he must be a, a damn genius. It's a lie. It's a lie. And the lie is being told because globalists <clears throat> are eager to see the borders come down. And even if you look at the, the, the Paris Accord, the World Bank had posted articles years ago, and I was astonished. And they said that the two quickest ways of moving money from America to the third world, to the developing world, as they call it, was the green program, sustainability, which is exactly what Donald Trump said, and by implementing comprehensive immigration reform. This is about the movement of America's wealth out of the country. And I think, and I can't prove this, but I don't think this is a stretch, that the goal is to move the money to corrupt third world governments where it is far easier for all of these crooks to dip their ladles into the trough and take what they want. You see? This is what this is about. This is a transference of wealth. This isn't about the environment. People have bought into this foolishness. We're going to destroy the environment. No, that's not what this is about. What this is about is a funding mechanism so that America has to spend money, has to give more aid to countries like India. Now, by the way, if you look at what's happening with China, our most favored trade partner, really? They are our adversary. Partners don't threaten our warplanes and buzz them. Partners don't build artificial islands in the South China Sea and then tell our military, stay away or else. Now, right now, we are admitting about a half million foreign students per year to study the STEM curriculum science, technology, engineering, and math. Half million. We're told that our schools can't produce the engineers we need, the programmers we need, even as Americans are getting laid off in record numbers, and Trump is trying to stop that. Why do you think he's getting such resistance? Because the globalists in the Republican Party, people like Menendez, the senator from New Jersey, and John McCain, and, 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 and Graham, and all these others, they're globalists. They're furious because this is about opening up the borders. They don't want you to know this. But number one, 
China sends us more immigrants than any other country, and China and India lead the hit parade as to who they send to this country to learn how to be scientists, engineers, and computer programmers. Adversaries are getting their engineers trained in the United States so they can go home and build up their military and confront America with the military that they were trained to build here in the United States. Here in the United States. And in fact, you had... Diane Feinstein at a hearing back in, um, I believe it was February 24th, 1998, two days short of the fifth anniversary of the bombing at the World Trade Center in 1993 that left six people dead, left over a 1,000 people injured, almost toppled the building sideways, and I don't even want to imagine what the casualties would have looked like. But as it was, they inflicted about a half billion dollars in damages. And so Feinstein at a hearing that was held by the Senate Judiciary Committee into foreign terrorists operating on American soil, questioned the wisdom of continuing the visa waiver pilot program. It was a pilot program then. She questioned the wisdom of providing visas to aliens who were citizens of countries that sponsored terrorism. She also questioned the wisdom of providing training to citizens of those countries so that they could become biochemists and nuclear physicists because she voiced apprehension and gave specific examples of terrorist scientists who had been educated and then sought to use their training to create weapons of mass destruction. So that was in 98. That was three years before 9-11. There were no riots, no demonstrations. Nobody went out there and, 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 and screamed about Dianne Feinstein. Everyone said these are reasonable concerns. Look at how the propaganda machine since 1998 has shifted Americans' understanding of immigration, of our borders, of our vulnerabilities to people who are determined to destroy us. The lunacy is that people who are supposedly intelligent are falling for the lies. And when you look at college campuses and you look at safe spaces, you know, there's nothing progressive about this. This is regressive. This is dangerous. Had I not become a federal agent, my degree was in communications, arts, and sciences. I had planned to teach debate on the college level. There are no debates on college campuses when you have safe spaces and when people mob anybody who you would disagree with. But the people that are getting mobbed are always the conservative. Now, on many issues, I'm not a conservative. You know, this isn't left-right. This is right-wrong. But what is happening is anybody whose viewpoint doesn't parallel that which the administration of those universities sanction is barred from speaking at the universities under the threat of violence. If you think about the Nazi brown shirts, that's what the school colors on those campuses have all become. They've all become brown. They've all become about totalitarianism and shutting down dissension so that nobody even understands that there's another way of thinking, that there's another way of doing business. You know, it used to be said that if you wanted to buy a Model T Ford, you could get it at any color as long as it's black. Today, you can go to a college campus and express yourself any way you want as long as you march lockstep with the prevailing narrative. And that narrative is about globalism, not about sovereignty, not about protecting the lives or livelihoods of Americans. And God help you if you dare suggest that we ought to be protecting American lives or American livelihoods. That's one hell of a mess. And the solution 
in my humble opinion, is that we the people need to engage our neighbors, our friends, our family, when we can, in a fair, honest discussion, low-key, fact-based. And that's why I ask you to go to my websites, michaelcutler.net, capsweb.org, frontpagemagazine.com, frontpagemag.com, the social contract, and now I'm happy to add to that list, Newsmax. Please check out my articles, and please remember, folks, democracy is not a spectator sport. Sorry we got off to a rough beginning on the show today. Hopefully next week's show will go more smoothly without technical glitches, but I am glad that you joined me. And again, please remember democracy is not a spectator sport. Have a great weekend, everybody.